Welcome to the One Rental at a Time podcast. This is your host, Michael Zuber. This is the show where we interview guests involved in the real estate business, from experts to newbies, wholesalers, flippers, buy and hold, apartments, commercial, notes, hard money, Airbnb, mobile homes. It doesn't matter. If you're involved in the business, we want to talk to you. This show relies on referrals and recommendations from our listeners. If you know someone we should talk to, please make a recommendation. As the author of One Rental at a Time, The Journey to Financial Freedom, I'm dedicated to helping you take your first or your next step on your real estate journey. But I need your help. We need to spread the message of One Rental at a Time Works. Please share this podcast, my YouTube channel, and of course, my book, all called One Rental at a Time. Thanks, and let's start the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I have uh, the honor of interviewing someone that I first met, uh, I don't know if you call it virtually back then, but through his book. Mitch Steven wrote a book, uh, My Life in a Thousand Houses. Hopefully, I got that right. And I, I read that back, I think it was 2009. Uh, back then, I had seven or eight houses, and I saw the cover, and I'm like, a thousand houses? Oh, my God. I couldn't fathom that. So I, I had to pick that up. Um, I'm going to go find that book because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet uh, Mitch and get it autographed someday. So Mitch, how are you doing this morning? There it is. <laughs> yeah, I took my ugly picture off the front. I grew up <laughs> real fast. Uh, hey, well, one of the things is thanks for being, you were one of the first guys probably to buy the book because, you know, it published in 2008 and then I didn't even know what to do with it because I self-published. Yeah. And so you're probably like one of the very first people to ever read that book. So well, thank you. Very oh, you're very welcome. I mean, you, you know, part of, part of writing and authoring or publishing a book is getting the cover right. And you, at least for me, that cover spoke to me. <laughs> it's been a very good title and, and it, it, it stuck with me for a long time. And uh, the problem is, is, you know, I had done a thousand houses at the time. Well, now <laughs> I've done 2000 houses, but you know, you can't go back and you change, can't go back and change it. <laughs> Not that it really matters, but you know, like who's counting except for me. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyways, you know, uh, you know, I never intended to write. I never intended to write this book. And and and, it, and if uh, you would have asked a hundred people in my life, you know, when is Mitch Stephen going to write his book? They'd have looked at you like you're freaking crazy. <laughs> and and I'm sure there's at least four English teachers rolling over in their damn graves right now. Uh, but what happened was um, something. Something tragic happened, and uh, and I lost somebody, and it really threw me into a state of grief. And I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but inadvertently, uh, I was journaling. I was trying to figure out. I was, uh, you know, later on, my doctors told me not because I went to my doctors over this, but I have a lot of doctors that um, invest with me, private lenders, mm -hmm. and, and they all want to know how my health is, so they stay in touch with me regularly. <laughs> so, you know, they're all, you know, want to know what my checkup was like this year, and are you going to live another five years or what, you know, and I'm so, um, but so I talk to them often, and they, they explain to me that um, it's a natural reaction to want to catalog your life when something devastating happens. And so what I was doing was I was cataloging my life. Why am I here? What have I done? What am I going to do now? Why did this happen? Where do I go from here? Uh, and I wrote 1,200 pages. And a couple of my doctor friends get are paid authors. They get paid like $150,000 advance to write a book on something. Wow. And, and uh, they told me what I was doing. 
and they asked if they could read it and it was highly personal and I, but I told them, yeah, because I, at the time I didn't give a crap about anything because yeah. that's how I was into it. So I wrote the thing that I did right was I wrote this really honest book because I was in this state where I didn't care about anything. So I was telling how it was at home fighting with my wife who was not an entrepreneur. I was telling about partners that were jacking me around and they were telling, you know, the, the, the crap that happens after the get rich seminar, the shit they forget to tell you in the seminar that, you know, and that that check really wasn't that big because we really didn't take the expenses out of that check. Yeah, the, exactly. the check was 18,000. Okay. But we showed you the big check because it'd make you buy the thing faster, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I started explaining all that with kind of a, sometimes a chip on my shoulder, but most of the time just out of hurt. And, and, and so I think what gravitated to people was the honesty of the book for sure. And, and that it was really, a true thing. It says failing forward to financial freedom. I, I had people call me and ask me, are you sure you want to put this book out? I mean, cause they'd read it and, they'd, and I'd go, why, why are you asking that? They go, you're not looking too smart in a lot of these chapters. I said, <laughs> you know, or then I, and then they said, you're sure your wife is going to be okay with this. I said, I said, I called my wife up. I said, I think you need to read those chapters again that you're in. Cause some people are thinking that they don't understand why you want this out. I just want to make sure it's okay with you. Cause once I put it out, I can't, I can't get it back. Right. And so she read over again and she says, you know, it ain't pretty, but that's the truth. That's what happened. That's how our life went. Yeah. And, uh, I don't like it, but that's the truth. And so put it out. And so my partners said that too, when I asked them nice. and I was perfectly willing to say, you know, it's not pretty, but it's the truth. Um, this is how I got to a thousand houses. And I didn't even know I was at a thousand houses. Uh, and you'll read in the book how I figured out that I was at a thousand houses. Um, I didn't even know I had bought that many houses at all. I didn't, if you'd have asked me, I thought I bought three or 400, I wouldn't have known. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So just so people know that haven't yet read the book, let's give them the time frame from the first one you bought to you realized you were at a thousand. Was that five years, 10 years? How, how long was that for you? It's probably... 10 years, probably. It could have been a lot faster. Maybe it was 12 years from yeah. 1996 to about 2000. And it's about a hundred houses a year because wow. I've been doing this for 22 years and, and I did the math. I buy a, I've, I have consistently bought a house every four to five days for 22 years. <laughs> so you don't, you don't believe in the whole real estate cycle thing, you know, like only buy at the bottom or whatever you're always buying. Well, I always buy at the bottom. I don't care what cycle we're in. Even when we're in hot markets, I'm still buying at the bottom yep. because I deal with there's chaos. You know, you could be the hottest market in the world. If you're going to jail in three days because you haven't paid $20,000 worth of child support and your grandma died and left you a house on the south side that's worth 20000 bucks, guess what? I mean, th that I can, that's worth 50000 bucks. guess what? You're selling it for twenty grand to keep from going to jail. Exactly. I deal with there's chaos. I deal with there is no more time left. You got to do something or get zero or go to jail or something bad's going to happen if you don't do something like right now. Yeah. And I don't create those scenarios. I'm just there for the people that need that money in a very short period of time or else, or right. else something's going to happen. And, you know, there's also good situations. I mean, people win the lottery and they just yeah. don't want this, don't need the money. And here you go. Here's the deal. I'm out of here. I'm going to the Hawaii. Yeah. You know, uh, or they get married and, you know, they're trying to make two houses into one household, you know, and mm -hmm. well said. So it's, not all, it's not all grave dancing, but yeah. a lot of the times it is. I just live where there's death, divorce, disease. Um, yeah. 
prison time or prison time. You know, there's a lot of different chaos points out there. And, and um, the, if, if there is such a thing as a recession-proof business, I believe that renting, for one, you know, I, I never said this before in my life, but I think renting is probably recession-proof or rentals. Mm -hmm. But the owner finance strategy is definitely um, recession-proof because think about this. Can we agree, Michael, that in a recession, the banks stop loaning money? Can we agree on that? Yes, sir. I've experienced that a couple of times. Yes, sir. Yeah, almost 100% of the time that I know of, I've been through two recessions, and the banks just stop they loaning stop. money. They lock up. Yep. Okay. Uh, so I, my, my owner finance value that I owner finance, my, I, ba I base my sales price on the rents. Yeah. So I got this formula, and I back into the rents, and I decide, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to move a renter from $1,200 a month into an owner at $1,200 a month, including PITI, principal interest taxes and insurance, or maybe even PITIS, servicing fee, um, principal interest taxes, insurance, and my loan servicers, whatever they charge me, I'm going to charge them. Sure. And so I'm trying to move them from being a renter to being an owner for the same exact amount a month, give or take 50 or hundred bucks. With the exception of they got to have a down payment to overcome their credit of at least 10% or more. Cause most of the people that need my financing have some credit issues, you know? Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. So those are the givens. The, the other given is, can we agree that most or a lot of people or a huge segment of the pie would rather own than rent if it costs the same per month, right? No, qu no so question. Given, given those two givens, let's have a conversation. And you just answer kind of freely. Don't overthink it too much. Um, <laughs> in a recession, when banks stop lending, what happens to the sales prices of houses? Uh, in general, sales prices of houses will get soft when that happens. Yeah, they would drop because yep. most people need a loan to buy a house. And when the banks close, they can't get a loan. And so there's less people trying to buy a house. So price falls. Yep. Demand uh, falls. Yep. If people can't buy houses, what kind of houses are they going to live in? They can't live in their own house. Whose house are they going to live in? They're going to live in yours. They're going to live in a rent house, right? Correct. Yes, sir. So in a recession, it's safe to say that there's, I think, and I believe, but correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not in your business. Sure. I think a lot of pressure put on rents because no one can buy a house. So they got to rent a house. Mm-hmm. So yep. when there's pressure put on rents, what happens to the rent rates? They go up, right? You got it. Correct. What did I tell you my owner finance sales price is based on? I told you it's based on the rent, right? Correct. So in the middle of the recession, 2008 to 2015 or however long it was, I had the only appreciating house price in the business because I was offering an owner finance um, sales price, which didn't have to have an appraisal because yep. I'm the guy who says whether... I'm the guy making the loan. So yep. the price is whatever I want the price to be. And I said, well, what's fair? Well, we'll make it, we'll just make it to where they can trade their rent payment for, for a mortgage payment. And if the rents are going up, then I'm backing into this formula and my sales price on my house is going up. So I have the only appreciating sales price on a house because I'm offering owner financing, then no one else in the state, everyone else's house prices was falling. Yep. That's awesome. And and so if there is such thing, and I'll never say that it's recession proof because that's a really huge statement. Yeah. And if, and if the good Lord wants you to go under, you're going to go under. It doesn't matter. But if there's such thing as a recession proof business, I believe rentals and the owner finance strategy could possibly be 
two of those businesses because people always got to have a place to live. Yep. And if you make the economics in your owner finance price the same cost per month, then people always want to own. Yeah. No, I think it's a genius move. And, I, and you're absolutely right. I experienced that from call it 09 to 12 where prices uh, were crashing, but rents were going up. Um, you know, so you're, you're so outlined. Yeah, you're that's outlined. cool because mm-hmm. I've never had a, 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 a buy and hold guy verify that for me because oh. I never asked. But now I'm able to ask a buy and hold guy. But, but from common sense, it just told me that rents would have to go up. This, this, is, not rocket, this is not rocket surgery, okay? Yeah. <laughs> rocket surgery. Yeah, and, I, and just so you can round out your story, not only did rents go up, uh, but the quality of applicant was better. Right, oh, so you- absolutely, because um, well, the other thing that happened in the recession was they raised the credit score bar from five, whatever it was, to 680. Yep. And all of a sudden, I wasn't getting the bottom of the barrel person who needed to own or finance the house anymore. Because before that day, if you could fog a mirror with all those liar loans or stated income loans, if you could, if you just lie about your income, you could, anyone could get a loan. I remember. <laughs> and plus, the, I think the, the bar was at like 550, I think, or something really low. Really? Then they raised it to 680, and now... A lot of people that were getting loans couldn't get loans, and they're starting to get back to the to the liar loans again. But but for the longest time here in the last seven, eight, nine years, you really had to substantially verify your income with proof. You know, you couldn't just do stated income. You had to bring in your paycheck and prove here lately. So that opened up a huge window and increased the caliber of my buyers too, yeah. of my buyers my customers. And they had more money down. They had better jobs. They had better time on the job. They were just all around better people. Uh, fiscally, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And again, your, your example in basing your price on rent is genius or payment on rent is genius. So why don't we break down for folks? Cause I, I think hey, more people need to think about it. Owner hold on finance. a second. So let's give the formula for people. This is how you back in to figure go. out you, to back into the rents. Okay. This is really valuable. So I'm going to, I believe in the give and you get back tenfold theory. So I'm dropping a heavy one here on you. Cool. Um, this is can change your life here. You take the rent and then you put a minus sign. Yeah. And then you put a parenthesis and then you put uh, taxes plus insurance. And this is monthly. Yep. And then you close the parenthesis and then times one, one, five, plus 12% equals the OFV. I haven't invented much in my life, but I think I coined the OFV, the acronym, Owner Finance Value. Aha. Okay, so let's go through it with real numbers. Okay. Say the rent's a thousand bucks. I'm just using this because I know the math here. You got it, thousand bucks, yep. Thousand bucks. Let's say that Taxes are a hundred bucks a month and the insurance 50 bucks a month. So that's 150. So a thousand minus 150 equals 850. Correct. Um, and, and, and if you multiply that, 850 is essentially what this guy has for principal and interest in, in taxes and in, uh, principal and interest. Okay. Yep. This is what he has for P and I because mm-hmm. the taxes aren't mine and the insurance aren't mine and neither are they yours or his or anybody. They, 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 they got to go away. Yep. So 50, and then you multiply it by 115. Mm-hmm. Not point anything, just 115. Okay. Now that's a multiplier that if you put over the top of that 115, put parentheses, um, that's a multiplier that will give you the approximate amount based on 10 years 
I mean, I'm sorry, 10% 30 years. That yeah. multiplier is based on 10% 30 years. Uh, so it'll give you a number mm-hmm. that 850 will, times 115 will give you a number that this person can afford to borrow if you use the terms 10% in 30 years, because that's what I'm going to use. Okay. So I, instead of having to have a calculator and a, you know, an app or something, have to put in the variables and everything, I just asked a really smart engineer one time, give me a damn multiplier you know, <laughs> from 300,000 under that I'll be pretty close to what they can borrow. Okay. So you multiply 850 times 115 and you come out to $97,750 is what you can afford to borrow Correct. at 10 for 30 years and still have an 850 principal interest payment more or less, plus or minus. Yep. Well, we don't, and so then you multiply that by, I mean, then you do plus 12% because if they can borrow 98,000, just say for a round number, if they can borrow 98,000 and have a payment for 850, then what does that make the sales price? Well, I need to get a down payment. So I'm adding 12% on top. Now, I used to add 10% on top, but I like getting 12% down payments better. Okay. Uh, so I add 12% on top. So that makes, the, that makes the owner finance value of this house very close to 110,000. So I'm just gonna round it up to 110,000 because I'm the underwriter and I get yep. the, I'm the one giving the loan. There is no appraiser, I am the guy. So if you and I agree that you wanna buy the house for 110 with 12,000 down, we're in. We're done. And I'll, the 98,000 at 10% for 30 years and your payment's going to be right about 850 plus principal and plus um, taxes and insurance. Another 150 going to put you right back at the thousand you were at when you were a renter. Yeah. The question is, do you have 12,000 down and do I want you? Mm-hmm. That's great. That, so uh, let's finish that story up. So you get a buyer in front of you. Let's assume they have the 12 grand. Let's assume you want them. Uh, is it just that simple 10% interest, 30 year fix, no balloon, no prepay, or do you put any yeah. of that other stuff? Nope. Nope. So against, they, the law to have a, against the law to have a prepayment penalty on someone's homestead, at least in Texas. Okay. All right. So uh, they, I could have a balloon, but okay. it'd have to be like seven years out. But this is what I found. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is the way I live my life. And I think I wish a lot more people would live their life like this, but uh, I, I probably need to do better in some other areas, but in this area, I got it hammered. Um, <laughs> I used to have these balloons and they never would qualify. Mm-hmm. They would never get their credit fixed. So by the time the balloon time came around, I had a choice either forgive them and let them keep going and send out the signal that not even their written signed word on a contract was, was worth anything. Cause I'd yeah. let them slide. Yeah. Or I had to take their twelve thousand or fifteen or thirty thousand dollar down payment and kick them out of the house and sell it to someone else. Yeah. And I didn't like either one of those choices. So I said, you know what? Um, I'm the more sophisticated of the group here. I'm gonna just give them a thirty year fixed mortgage. I'll I'll solve the underlying debt issue myself. Okay. I, I, I I'm more pre- I'm better prepared to do that. I'm a professional. I've been in the business twenty two years. Yeah. Um. And I want to stop having to make this horrible decision uh, every time someone's balloon comes up. No, that's, um, again, that goes to the quality of the person that you are. Because you're right. If, even if the balloon was 15 years out, we, a lot of folks that have the credit issue now will have the credit issue then. And then it's just a tough call, right? I mean, and like you said, neither option is great. Yeah, and then you're tempted by the upswing. I mean, because, you know, yeah. look, look, here's one thing that doesn't happen in your business, or maybe it does, but I just don't know how it happens. But here's one reason I like and, and I need to preface this. We had this conversation before we started, but I, I need to tell the audience. Yes. 
There's buy and hold guys and there's owner finance guys and it's two sides of a coin and neither side is right or wrong, but there's definite differences and pluses and minuses to each side. So I'm here to advocate for the seller financing side and show you the differences or the advantages, but we're also going to talk about the disadvantages of not hold buy and hold. So here's one of the advantages. Um, you know, when was the, I, let's say that house for 110,000, I'm offering it for sale. I'm asking 12,000 down. This happens to me regularly. Someone comes up and says, I want to put 30,000 down. What does that make my payment? I mean, so I want to ask you, Michael, when was the last time you asked for a deposit and someone offered you 30,000 down instead, non-refundable? <laughs> that never, uh, happened never happened. Never happened. No, that's uh, so, very true. So I had a person give me 30,000 down uh, last month on an $80,000 house. And I had someone give me $15,000 down on a $60,000 house last month. That, those are just windfalls. You can't really prepare or, or count on them. I'm always, I never take less than 10% though, sure. unless they're buying a house that needs a lot of sweat equity and I'm selling the house as is with the hole in the roof. See, that's yep. the other advantage to, to seller financing. I can sell a house that needs, I can sell a house owner financing to my buyer that has a hole in the roof the size of a dining room table. I can finance the house and the hole for 30 years at 10%. I just have to move my price down a little bit, but, but my house doesn't have to pass inspection. And again, I am the guy who owns the house. Yep. I am the guy who is making the loan. And if I want to give payments to someone on a house with a hole in a roof that says they're going to fix it, I have the right to do that. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so I don't have to fix my houses. By the way, one of the greatest strategies on the planet, in Mitch Stevens' humble opinion, is the buy it, don't fix it, owner finance it for double, and watch the guy making monthly payments to me go over budget fixing up my collateral. I love uh, it when they go over budget way more than I like it when I go over budget. And we all <laughs> go over budget, don't we, Michael? Yes, uh, routinely go oh. over budget. <laughs> I've been in this business 22, 24 years. I go over budget every rehab. So. Yes, no, no question. No, you're absolutely right. Being, being quote unquote, the bank, you get to make up the rules. You get to make up the, uh, the credit quality, the applicant, you get to check the asset. I mean, there's, everything is in your control. Um, well, now let's not forget now, we got Dodd-Frank that passed and we got some, uh, we got some regulation that we got to conform to. And we have to have, now a reasonable reason to believe that they can make the payment because a lot of people ah. were taking that $30,000 down payment knowing that the guy on the other end was going to fail because he's only making like $1,200 a month at Walmart, but he, but, but, but he, but he got an inheritance of $30,000 and, and, you, and you know he's not going to be able to make it and they're taking the $30,000 and then hoping to get the house back, which is a strategy that I think completely sucks yes. and, and so many people did did the sucky strategy that they passed laws. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very so, cool. So we do have some regulation to conform with. I think these days, if you're selling over the traditional market, you might need to put in a disclaimer to your buyer yeah. that I'm offering the terms. We're a little over the market. This is how much we're over the market. Sign here. Yep. Uh, no one's ever walked out of my closing table because of that. No, that's very true. So I, so, you know, buying or selling a house every four or five days, you know, call it every week for 20 some odd years. What does, um, what does your, you know, how often does um, somebody pay you off? I mean, are you seeing more people pay you off now because rates are kind of adjusted down or is it always well, about the, the same? Thing. 
That's the thing. The average note in America will last seven and a half to eight years. Okay. That's been for a long time. That statistic's been around. It might, it might be a little longer now, eight and a half or nine, but, but for the longest time. And it's true. So you can have 300, um, you know, note payments coming in every month. But if you sit down to retire on that within about 10 years, you you're going to have a hardly have a portfolio. Left. Right. You'll have a lot of money in the bank, but you know, so here's the deal to quote Jack Bosch who wrote a book called forever cash. Um, guy that came from Germany, didn't even speak the language comes to America. God bless America becomes rich. Finally figured out real estate was how he's going to do it. He wrote this book and there's like three kinds of cash, one time cash, temporary cash and forever cash. So one time cash is the fix and flip or the wholesale. You know, you got a house under contract, you make a deal, you, you get rid of that house under contract or get rid of the contract and you get one check and you're done. One time cash. Temporary cash is like what I'm doing. Uh, buy a house, get a down payment for today for some money now, and then I create income every month, but it's going to run out because it's a note. I mean, yeah. it has an end date. I mean, even if, even if they don't make any extra payments, it'll run out in 30 years. It's going to end. It's temporary. Yep. So you got to take the money you make from the one-time cash strategies and the temporary cash strategies to create a forever cash to, to put into a forever cash strategy, which would be rentals, something that you rent. It could be a business that you own, but, but I'm not saying you run. It have to be, you'd have to be the owner, which means like right under you is a CEO. Yeah. Because if you have a CEO, you still have a job. You're the CEO. You have to be the owner yep. um, of that business and run it from afar or, or by quarterly reports or something. I don't know. Yeah. But most likely you're going to, the forever cash play is going to be something that's a rental strip centers, apartment complexes, a large volume of single family houses. Now I chose a forever cash model that most people don't think of. And I chose it because it's the least strenuous of any rental I could think of. Hmm. And that was self storage business. It has no carpet. It has, you know, storage units where people yeah. rent 10 by 10 square and they put their crap in it and then they make monthly payments for the storage of it mm -hmm. and there's no sheetrock, there's no carpet, no hot water heaters, no air conditioners, no plumbing, no electrical to speak of, maybe a switch and a bulb. Um, one door, no windows, you know, it's really hard to mess this up. Yeah. And when you go to foreclose on someone, it's a lot less resistance. The, the person that's in default is giving you a lot less resistance because you're not changing where they and their kids lay their head yes. at night. Yes. So, so I chose storages. I have, I have come been in my 20, I keep saying 22 years. My, my daughter says, who's worked for me for, for 24 years says <laughs> it's been 24 years. Mitch, you never changed the number. It's been, <laughs> so it's 24, now, years. 24. So for 24 years, I've been taking the money that I made in, in the one-time cash and temporary cash strategies and rolling it over into storages. Today I am CanyonLakeStorage.com. I have 14 locations around the lake where I live. I store not only um, people's sell, uh, private goods, but I also store boats because ah. I'm in a lake. I mean, boat storage, which turned into RV storage and trailer storage and covered storage and open storage and private storage. And it turned into all different kinds of storage, but it's all basically the same uh, method. And I have 1,600 doors. Wow. And do the math real quick. Every door owes me an average of 100 bucks on the first of each month. So how much is that? 
16, I don't know, that's a lot of zeros, man. 160,000 a month, I'll do it for you. That's pretty and, impressive. And if I only get to keep half of that, which I guarantee you I do. Oh, for sure. But because I've had this stuff, I, my, I did my first 13 units in 1991. So I've been building this business over a, a 30 year period, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't owe a lot on a, on a bunch of them. So, yeah. but let's just say you only get to keep 50% because you got taxes and insurance and lawn maintenance and light yeah. bulb and the door replacement, everything. I mean, you got stuff, you, stuff, you know. Yeah. Stuff. So if it's, I mean, if you only keep half of that, eighty thousand a month. How many people in the audience could live off of eighty thousand a month? Let's raise <laughs> our hand. Hey, let's just say it a different way. If you can't live off of eighty thousand a month, just go shoot yourself. Okay? Yeah, you got a spending problem, not an income problem. <laughs> <laughs> Some issues, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's what I do. I mean, I don't have to work anymore. I never, I haven't had to work for a long time. Yeah. But um, what am I gonna do? You know what? What exactly? The other thing is, is there are all kinds of addictions in this world, and I prefer to just stay addicted to deals. No, that's that's a that's a relatively healthy one. Yes, there are yeah, bad right. ones. All the things you get addicted to, I'm a deal junkie. Like if I don't buy a house, like every four days, I start shaking. Yeah, I can just imagine. They don't see you for two weeks around the holidays. They're like, where'd Mitch go? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm jonesing, man. I'm jonesing like crazy. So we've talked a bunch about the exits. Why don't we just highlight for folks uh, how you how you attract deals, right? How you have a a network of you know, wholesalers. After the first book, after the first book, Failing Forward to Financial Freedom, was, was kind of autobiographical about how a dummy figured out how, how to buy a thousand houses. Um, the biggest, the most popular question of the day after that was, how in the world do you find so many houses? I mean, like the first, the first um, year I quit in March of 1996, I quit my job yeah. because I had part-time put in $36,000 in the bank um, from wholesaling some deals or, you know, flipping some deals. And I had a whole year's worth of salary in, in the bank and, I, and my job wasn't anything special. I said, you know, I was looking for a job when I found this one. So I'm going to jump off a cliff and I'm going to just keep putting my money, rationing my money to myself, just like I did when I had a job. I'm not going to change anything, but I got a year. I want to see what I can do in a year. And, it, and I quit March of 1996. And by the end of that year, which is not even a full year, yeah, I had bought, I had, flipped over 45 houses. Wow. The next year I did 65 houses because I had a full year. And then the year after that, the third year, did 150 houses exactly and sold 97 of them and had 53 in my inventory going into the fourth year. Wow. So people wanted to know, how in the world do you find so many houses? That was all documented in this book. And people wanted to know. So the second book I wrote on purpose, I wrote, you know, My Life in a Thousand Houses, 200 plus ways to find bargain properties. And that book went kind of like this. I walked in the office and said, so how do we buy these houses? <laughs> I said, I don't know. How do we usually buy? How do we, where do we usually find our seller? They go, well, there's not any real one usual way. I said, well, well, tell me some ways, you know, and they're going, well, you know, we bought this house like this and we bought that. And, I, and so I started writing down all the ways that we buy these or find these houses or these leads. And I was amazed, man. I was at like 197, 198. Now, there's actually 215 in the book because I know some jerk's going to count them. And like, oh, send me an email. So I put an extra 15 in there just in case. You know? Just in case, yeah. <laughs> in case someone actually counted, want to hold me accountable, I could go, aha, I put 215 in there, didn't I? So yeah, I'm a yeah. good guy and not a bad guy. That's right. So That's I, but, you know, it all starts, depends on what your budget is. Uh, when you're starting on a shoestring, like everybody I know, like I did, every every successful real estate entrepreneur I know started broke with, with not two nickels to rub together. 
So there's a plan for that. And then there's a plan as you get more, uh, when you get more of a budget, you know, when you have a budget mm -hmm. uh, and can afford a budget. So the first thing, like when you don't have any money was I would go around, collect all the political signs, flip them over, cut them and cut them in 18 by 24 squares. Cause they were all four by eight, you know, yeah. or whatever size I would make, I would flip them over um, and start writing on them. And I, I, cause I couldn't even afford to buy plastic, you know, yeah. I couldn't afford to buy anything. And so I was taking down any political signs I could take and uh, cause they're all scoundrels anyway. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I would wait till after the elections, you know, I, I didn't take them while the elections were live, but they're supposed to take those signs down within 48 hours of the election and they never do. No, they never do. And so I figured they're fair game after 48 hours after the election. If they're oh, not yeah. Yeah. by the law, then I'm taking them down and I'm going to, and I'd spray paint the backside black. So like nobody could bust me for taking, cutting their sign up. Very cool. And I'd write and I put out a hundred, 200, I buy houses signs in neighborhoods. I wish I, I thought I could afford to buy a house or make a deal. Um, that's how I started. I put out hundreds, well, thousands and thousands and thousands of signs in my career. Um, but then as I got a budget today, today what works is um, cold calling from outbound calling center. You know, I have my own center run by an acquisition manager who's part of the team. We have some overseas VAs and we have some Americans. We're, we're comparing the two, how they do. Sure. The overseas VAs are, you know, they have to speak great English to begin with. So you can't pay them two or three dollars an hour. You got to pay them four or five dollars an hour. Sure. But you got to pay the Americans twelve dollars an hour. So we're comparing for the extra six dollars an hour or whatever, is an American more effective or not? Just because they know the culture. I mean, like the Filipinos, God bless their hearts. They're great people, and I love them to death. But they just didn't grow up in this capitalistic culture the way we did. You know, like. I talked to one of them one day and said, Hey, so you talked, you know, you made your phone calls. Any luck? He says, no, there was this one guy I called about that house on, on main street, but he said he wasn't interested in selling that house. He was interested in selling another house, but not that one. So I hung up on it. You know, said, well, what was the other house he wanted to sell? He says, well, I don't know. I didn't ask him. I'm like, Oh, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> Stop. Very, very cool. So I, I want to be sensitive to your time. How much time do we have for you? I didn't know if you no, had a hard time. Cool. Another 10 or 15 minutes or whatever you want. I mean, no, I don't no, have okay. Very cool. Uh, I need to do a mute here real quick. Just one second. Yeah, please. Okay, sorry about that. That's okay. uh, they wanted to go get me some lunch, and I thought I'm hungry. Um, oh, how nice of them! Yes. Yeah. So, um, so where do you want to go? Which way you want to take this conversation? Well, I guess one of the things I always like to do is, you know, if you had some recommendations for someone starting out that sort of says, you know what, I don't want to be a buy and hold landlord guy. I like this idea that Mitch is talking about owner financing. Um, where would you recommend they go start? You know. I mean any recommendations? You know, I, have, I have a podcast myself, reinvestorsummit.com, reinvestorsummit.com, not to be confused with REI Investor. It's not REI. It's R-E, realestateinvestorsummit.com. And 
you can find me on Stitcher, iTunes, or just go to that .com site, and it'll have all 300 archived deals. But also, I have a website called 1000houses.com, and I got tons of free stuff there. Yeah. First 100 pages of my book free, an hour and a half PowerPoint on how and why and what I do when go. I own houses. Uh, I have an overwhelming amount of free stuff there. A guy could launch a career from the free stuff I give. But I think what we should I, – I, I didn't want to just promote the – the seller finance side. I also wanted to promote the pros and cons of, of the landlord side too, because you know, one thing you don't get as a seller financer is you don't get appreciation and you don't get depreciation for your taxes. Yep. So one of the reasons I was so happy to jump into the forever cash model, because that was a rental buy and hold model. Sure. And I started getting depreciation on some heavy duty million dollar assets. You know what I mean? To oh. offset this, lot of money that I make doing the owner finance strategy. What's cool about the owner finance strategy is I make some money when I borrow. I borrow with OPM. I always borrow a couple thousand extra than what I need to buy the house and fix it because it probably cost me a couple of thousand per house to find that, that seller. You know, these yep. sellers don't just hang around on my doorstep. I got to go out and dig them up and that costs money. Sure. Here's a typical example, I, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna offset and make a big argument on the appreciation side here. So listen to me carefully here. I buy a house, and I'm just using some round numbers, which are quite typical in my part of town. But you might have to move the bar up in different parts of the world. Okay. I buy a house for fifty. I borrow fifty-two. I borrow my money from private people at eight percent interest only five years. If you want to know why I do borrow that money for that, just go to my blog at 1000houses.com and look up the blog post, why I borrow at the terms I do. Not only will it tell you why I borrow at those terms, but it tells you how I get out of the obvious train wreck that I have a five-year balloon interest only. It says all the ways to get out of that. So I've borrowed this money, 52000 from a private lender, 8% interest only, five years, collateral only, non-recourse, no personal guarantee. And my payments say three fifty. I'll be pretty close. Okay. And then I owner finance this house for double, which happens a lot, but I'll go up to 65%. You know, I, I will borrow up to 65% of what I can own or buy the house, but not over that. Okay. So in this case I'm borrowing, I'm, I'm selling for a hundred thousand and I borrowed 52,000. My payments, three fifty. The guy that buys my house gives me 10 grand down. Yeah. So that's my pay. That's my pay for today. If I do that three times in a month, I'm making 30000 a month. I mean, it's easy enough to live off of. Do yep. it two times a month, I make 20000 a month. Do it one time a month, I make 10000 a month in the down payment. And I finance the 90000 at 10% for 30 years fixed, no balloon. Now, this guy owes me eight fifty a month for 30 years. Mm -hmm. You take the eight fifty coming in, you subtract the three fifty going out, and I'm clearing $500 a month, of which I am not a landlord. Now, let's go back to that problem of owner financiers don't get the appreciation of the property. I just bought a house for 52 and sold it for a hundred in less than 30 days. I mean, how much appreciation do you damn landlords want? Does anyone <laughs> annualize that? You know, I did it. Actually, my average days on market is nine days on the last 300 houses. Wow. Because I got selling owner finance houses down to a sign. Yeah, no joke. And I averaged 12% down. But Okay, so I can blow I can blow the um, the appreciation argument from landlords out of the water. But the one thing I cannot do anything about is I'm going to pay. I, I bought that house and sold it. I'm going to pay the highest tax rate. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But I am going to take it 
as it comes in, but on that $10,000, you know, I'm 20, I'm capital gains, you know, yep. whatever my income rate is. Um, so I, I can't hide from the problem of depreciation, which the landlords have hammered. So you have to take the money you make from this and you have to buy some kind of rental yeah. for every cash strategy. And then you can, so you have to take an extra step to get ca caught up with the landlord on depreciation. You have to take that extra step and buy something with this money. So that's, there's the arguments. Now the biggest argument for being a owner financier is that when that $500 a month comes in, that's my money. Because yep. if the air conditioner breaks, I don't have to give it to the air conditioner man. Or if the roof leaks, I don't have to give it to the roofer man because it's not my house anymore. Yeah, no, so exactly. It's not my house. And the other argument is my payment stream will not last forever. The landlords will last forever. Okay? So that's where that extra step comes in again. I got to buy something forever. So there's the basic arguments. You know, the one thing I didn't like about being a landlord was I never really knew how much money I was going to make every month because I was responsible for everything from the back fence to the front mailbox and everything in between. And if it broke, I probably was going to have to pay for it like 98% of the time. Plus, tenants are a little more litigious than um, mortgage payers because mortgage payers can't sue their lender, but tenants can sue their, you know, their, sure. their apartment owner or whatever. So, mm -hmm. so those are the arguments in a nutshell. And I go back and forth in my book, um, in my book, my third book, The Art of Owner 1,000 Houses, My Life in 1,000 Houses, The Art of Owner Financing. I go through this complete argument and all the case studies and explain exactly why I picked the other side of the coin, but there's no right or wrong yeah. way. And you may very well have a mix. You may very well hold your rentals for two years so you get past capital gains and then convert them to owner financing if and when your tenant goes awry on you. Mm -hmm. But why would you ever kick out a good tenant if they're paying and they're not complaining and they're not breaking stuff? Just leave them alone, right? Amen. Yeah. So, yeah, no, there's, uh, you know, the, the beauty of real estate investing, as you know, is you, there are so many options. Uh, but I think how you've broken down, you know, today cash, your cash and, and forever cash is, is interesting. Who, who was the German? I'm, I, I need to write his name down that wrote that uh, book. Uh, Hakeem Bosch or Jack Bosch. B-O-S-C-H. Uh, yeah, that one I have not read, I don't think. I need to go look at he's that. A, he's, a, he's a neat guy. And he, he, he actually promotes, speaking of all different kinds of strategies, yeah. which is part of the problem for a newbie coming into this realm is, my God, you're going to get hit with so many ways to do it that you're going to, everything's going to seem better when you listen to the next speaker. Yeah. Um, you need to do, you know, you need to listen to all of them or as many as you can stand or as much, many of them as you can. And then you need to pick ones that you think really fit you and your market, your personality mm -hmm. and your market. Like you can't do owner financing in Los Angeles. Yeah. Now I do have people in Los Angeles, you know, because houses are six and $700,000 for 1100 house. Yeah. <laughs> too hard to be a newbie and okay, I'm going to buy my first house. All I need is $700,000. You know, yeah. uh, you need to, but, but I am training people in Los Angeles, how to buy in El Paso, Texas, or how to buy in Fort Worth or how to buy in Dallas or Houston. And yeah. they're actually learning how to set up a real business. They'll fly out there for a week or a month or two months and they'll get their boots on the ground with my help and we'll get it all set up. And then, you know, with technology, the way it is, we can run a lot of this from afar, but you do need a, a few critical boot people with some boots on the ground in your area that you can count on mm -hmm. to tell you the truth about things. 
And then you can, but what's cool about it is if you actually take that challenge to create a market away from where you live, you will be, be creating a real business that you have to work on and not in because you're not there. That's and a so good point. Yeah. With that challenge, you'll have a real friggin' business, a real one where you can go to the Bahamas and on a cruise ship and go wherever you want and still it runs. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So as we wrap this up, I want to make sure we do a couple of things. First, I'd love to hear about what you do to relax. I mean, is it a cruise ship or where do you go to vacation or unplug? And then of course, how can people track you, follow you, get the three book special, whatever you'd like. So uh, two topics to wrap up. Okay, so let's start with the, um, how you find me. Go to 1000houses.com. That's the easiest, 1000houses.com. There you can get all my free stuff. You can get the three book. You know, these books, I don't sell them cheap. They're 20, 30, and 50 bucks. Anyone walks up to me and says, why is this book 50 bucks? I tell them, please set it down, stand back, move away from it. You're not ready. That book's million dollars okay i'm selling it for 50 bucks i'm telling you every i'm telling you how i became a multi 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 millionaire okay and everything in between so um plus it cost about 20 bucks to produce because i needed to do four color because Ooh. i did so many numbers that i needed to make it easy to recognize green as income red as expenses blue is interesting yellow is dangerous you know cool. uh, so you could look at a deal from a glance and kind of size it up fast nice. um so you can get the three book special for like 79 bucks, I think, but normally it's a hundred bucks to buy those books individually. All kinds of free stuff. Um, my hobby, how I relax. Yeah. I love to travel, but my, my, my wife is 10 years into Parkinson's right now. So as a side note, if you know anything revolutionary or on the cutting edge about Parkinson's, please find me and tell me because we're desperate for that information. Um, but since we don't travel as much or we can't travel as much anymore, I bought a ranch 40 minutes south of town. I got 600 acres that I hunt on. Wow. I hunt deer, quail, dove, turkey, hogs, and hogs are not regulated, and in fact, a burden. And I hunt hogs at least twice a week, and that's where I, I vent myself. I get out of my golf cart. It runs very quiet. We, we, we putts over 600 acres. Um, my camp there is very nice and very comfortable for my wife and has a swimming pool, which is what she likes to do is lay in the sun and sunbake. And so while she's doing that, I go out and, you know, play a uh, Montana Jack or whatever, you know, <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson. I crawl around on my hands and knees and stalk things with oh. a knife. Teeth. Really? Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. I, well, Mitch, again, I want to thank you. Um, for what you did for me all those years ago. It's, it's, it's hard for me to say a decade ago. So it's just, you know, putting, putting a number on it. So thank you for that. And again, thank you for this. This has been a lot of fun. It's always fun to talk to your heroes uh, and I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, you know, you said, uh, I don't know. Uh, you said something that kind of alluded to, you know, I'm sure you hear this all the time and you know, you're yeah. going to gush about being a fan or whatever. I said, no, I don't hear it all the time. Please tell me um, I'm not that famous and, and, and I'm really, really, really happy that I'm able to help some people because this business has been really good to me. Uh, it keeps me occupied, but it also, it's, it's giving me, I don't need more money. What I need now is some kind of emotional gratification. Yeah. And I get that now when I'm helping people change their lives and find their own financial independence and, 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 and become who they're supposed to become in life, not just a worker for some company. There you go. Very well said. Well, thank you very much again, Mitch. It was great speaking with you and have a wonderful day.